hope you are enjoying our daily readings as I am. We're in a great section of God's Word right now. A lot is happening. Uh, Moses and Aaron before Pharaoh, the plagues, the Passover, the Israelites finally leaving Egypt, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, the crossing of the Red Sea, bread from heaven, water from the rock, the Ten Commandments. The issue for me, obviously, is finding a single text to preach from in the midst of all these wonderful passages, and there are a lot of options, but what I've chosen to do <coughs> is to take a look, a close look at chapters 11 and 12, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> and then trace the theme that connects those events with Christ and the new covenant and that theme as you might have guessed from all the songs and your readings is the blood and we don't really like to talk about the blood it's just not that popular of a topic in most churches and that's unfortunate because there is power in the blood say there's power in the blood I've often said, you've heard me say it before here at least once, if you're attending a church where the pastor does not or will not talk about the blood of Christ, do not walk away from that church, run away from that church. We know that Moses was sent by Yahweh to demand that Pharaoh let his people go. And old Pharaoh's response was, was one that we might have predicted. He, he rejected God's command. He looked down his nose at the miracles that God did through Moses and, and, and Aaron, and he had a hard heart toward the Lord. And more on that in a moment. As a re result of his refusal to listen to God's word through Moses, a parade of plagues was poured out on Pharaoh and his people. The waters of the Nile, as you know, the Egyptians considered the Nile a god. The waters of the Nile were turned to blood and came frogs and gnats and flies and the death of livestock and boils and hail and locusts and darkness and then finally the tenth plague and this is where I want us to focus this morning God told Moses that he would send one more plague one so terrible that God would not only let the Israelites go he would command them to go Pharaoh would drive them out of the land fulfilling the promise God had made before the plagues began, all the way back in Exodus chapter 6, verse 1. So we're going to read uh, just portions of the text today. There's a lot of verses, we won't read them all. But we're going to read verses 4 through 10 of chapter 11 to start with. Would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word? Beginning in verse 4 again. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt... And every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the hand mill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that I will go out. 
And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people go out of his land. Father, we've heard this story. We've seen the video depictions of these miraculous events, Father, and, and yet we still find it difficult to wrap our minds around the, the magnitude of these moments. We pray, Lord, that you'd speak to us today clearly through your word by the power of your Holy Spirit. Help us to relearn and recall long-held truths, Father, and perhaps today uh, there would be some who would hear truths that would kindle a fire in their heart to know your son Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Please be seated. Throughout the ordeal of the plagues, time and again, the heart of Pharaoh had been hardened toward God. And many people have asked this question, and perhaps you have as well. You know, why, why would God do that? Why would God harden Pharaoh's heart? The cause attributed to the king's hardness of heart is evenly split. If you do the research ten times, the Bible says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And ten times, the Bible says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And that balance suggests that Pharaoh was responsible for his own actions. And at the same time, God was using Pharaoh's rebellion to bring greater glory to himself. Pharaoh fought against God. And God hardened a heart that was predisposed to reject him. Pharaoh stubbornly resisted the lordship of Yahweh, and God used that defiance to demonstrate his power over all the gods of Egypt. And Paul even uses this account to emphasize the sovereignty of God in the affairs of men in Romans 9, 17, and 18, where he quotes Exodus 9, 16. Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One thing we need to see is what distinguishes the Israelites from the Egyptians. Again, this is in fulfillment of the prophecy, uh, God's promise that he made that after 400 years of captivity, the people would be delivered from Egypt. We need to understand that God had orchestrated the back and forth with Pharaoh and the exodus from the very beginning. Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 46, verse 10, I am the God. And I guess I don't have that in there. Uh, let's see if I do. No, I don't. I am the God, and there is none like me, declaring the I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done. That's Isaiah 46, 10. So again, 400 years prior to the Exodus, Joseph had prophesied on his deathbed that God would lead his people out of Egypt, out of captivity to the promised land. And he made his relatives promise to carry his bones with them when they went. That's from Genesis chapter 50. You recall reading that a few weeks ago. And that brings us right up against the Passover recorded in chapter 12. So how, why were the people delivered out of Egypt? Was it the plagues? Was it uh, Pharaoh's lack of 
patience. No, the, the, the Israelites were delivered by the same thing that has delivered you and me. They were delivered by the blood. God chose to deliver his people by the blood, the blood of the Lamb. And we're going to see if there's any connection between what happens there in Exodus and in the rest of Holy Scripture. And let's begin, let's begin with John the Baptist. Now, let's just be honest, John was kind of weird, right? Um, he's out there. We call him a fanatic today, right? I mean, he, he wore clothes made out of camel's hair, and he ate grasshoppers. Now, they were covered with honey, but they were still grasshoppers. <laughs> Y'all go try that sometime. He was a different kind of guy, for sure. But to his credit, he was a man on a mission. His whole life mission was to prepare the way for Jesus. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. <coughs> Sorry. The life mission of, of John the Baptist was to announce Jesus to the world. And when the time came for John to do that, to announce Jesus to the world, the moment he introduced Jesus to the world, do you recall what he said? Somebody say it for me. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's from John 1 and verse 29. Now we know he did that because he was led by the Spirit. But John, I suggest to you, also understood the depth of the meaning of that particular title. But let's just imagine for a moment, all the different ways that John could have introduced our Lord. He could have simply said, Behold the Son of God. He could have said, Behold the Word of God. Or, or behold the bright and morning star. And behold the light of the world. Behold the bread of life. Behold the Lord of Israel. Behold the great I Am. Behold the maker of heaven and earth. Behold the judge of the world. Behold the ruler of the ages. And any one of those would have been accurate. But one John wanted us to be aware of, first and foremost, was behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here's the one who will be the sacrifice. Here's the one who will shed his innocent blood for all who will come to him by faith. John knew that more than anything else, this was what we needed to know about Jesus. If you and I are going to grasp what Jesus is all about, we must see him as the Lamb. And Exodus 12 is the perfect place for us to begin making that connection. I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 13 of chapter 12, and then verses 29 through 32. You'll be able to follow them on the screen or in your own copy of the text. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, 
and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and pour it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or, un or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fashioned, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in, the ha in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. Am I in the right spot? And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And then here we are. We're caught up now. Verse 29. At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel. And go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone. And bless me also. The reading of God's word will be blessed. Notice the distinction, again, that the Lord is going to make. He's not going to, not going to take the bypass, as it were, around the, the suburbs of Goshen and, and visit just the Egyptian Subdivisions. Now, his plan involves going throughout the whole land. And the distinction he's going to make is that some homes will be places of refuge under the blood of the Lamb. The Lord will pass over them. While the remainder, every home not covered by the blood, will face his judgment. Very specific instructions given by Moses. Right first, the Lamb is going to be chosen on the tenth day of the month going to be watched for four days, make sure that it was of quality, it met divine perfection, just not any old lamb was going to do. Then on the 14th day of the month, just as the sun was setting, now remember the Israelites marked the Jewish day from evening to evening. That lamb was to be slain then. Its blood applied to the doorposts and the lintel, the header of the house in which the Jewish families lived. In verse 22, we see they took a... a, a gathered up some, a handful of the, of the hyssop plant, used it as a makeshift paintbrush, and painted the blood on the doorposts, the door frames of their homes. And then they were to go inside and stay inside. There they'd be protected by the blood of the lamb. And during the night, they were to roast that lamb along with bitter herbs and then eat it with unleavened bread. But notice they were to eat it quickly, eat it standing up with their loins girded, because they were about to leave that place. This was the last night they would ever spend in the land of Egypt. Look at verse 23. At midnight, the Lord goes through the land. He's going to pass over every house. 
that's covered by the blood of the Lamb. Verse 29, as for the Egyptians, as for anyone who didn't listen to the warning, the firstborn of those homes that are going to be struck down. This plague did it. After this, Pharaoh's going to let the Israelites go. From that moment until today, the Jewish people celebrate Passover as their deliverance from bondage in Egypt. <coughs> there are, these are some of the highlights of, of the Passover. But I believe a little context will help us fully grasp the big picture of God's plan in all of Scripture. That's really what we're doing this whole year as we were trying to see the big picture of God's Scripture, God's plan in the Bible and its significance for us. So let's start. Let's start by making that connection, making that connection by backing up, let's say, 500 years to a mount called Moriah. You remember the story? We were there just a few weeks ago, Genesis chapter 22. Abraham's walking up Mount Moriah with Isaac, his son, his only son, the son he dearly loved. Abraham's ready to sacrifice this beloved child, his long-awaited son, the promise of God, to offer him as a sacrifice for atonement. Isaac's carrying the wood. Abraham's carrying the fire and the knife. And then Isaac asks the question, Father, I see the fire, I see the wood, but where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And what did Abraham say? God himself will provide, what do you say, congregation? The lamb. And you know the story. At that pivotal, perilous moment, just as Abraham raised that knife and was about to plunge it into Isaac, God stopped him and provided a ram in Isaac's place. Isaac didn't die. The ram died. And from that day on, we talked about this a few weeks ago, that mountain was called the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide what? The lamb. And the Lord will provide the lamb on that same mount, just outside of Jerusalem. He will provide his monogonase, that is his unique, one-of-a-kind son, as a true atoning sacrifice. And Jesus would carry wood as well, as long as he could bear it, up a hill called Calvary, to die in our place for our sins. Genesis 22, 14 says that all Israel knew on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Of course, the, the ancient Israelites in Moses' day had no conception of Messiah coming to serve a, as a dead sacrifice, only of him coming to reign and to rule. No, no way they had any inkling that as they killed this little lamb and sheltered under its blood, that first Passover night, that there was a day coming when the Lamb of God would provide the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate shelter. Now, as beneficiaries of the whole story, from cover to cover, we, we make the connection. I mean, I mean, we get it. We see it. But no way they made that connection. But now, let's, let's, we're talking about context here now. Let's move ahead, say, 800 years. Move past hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of of lambs being sacrificed and blood being spilled and stop at Isaiah chapter 53 where Isaiah prophesies what the Messiah will do like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shearers is silenced, silent so he did not open his mouth but then back up to verse 5 before that where he says he was wounded for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah's message given to him by God under inspiration of the Holy Spirit showed him that the coming Messiah, the Christ, was the Lamb of God. That he would die in our place to bring us healing and hope, forgiveness and peace, refuge and redemption. Though still, God's people did not make the connection. They didn't connect the dots. Now let's move ahead in time again. 700 years past the time of Isaiah. Jesus is riding a donkey into Jerusalem to the cheers of crowd. It's the 10th day of the month known as Nisan, just like in Exodus. And all of Israel, as, as all of Israel is preparing for the Passover, preparing to commemorate what God had done to deliver their ancestors out of Egypt, Jesus enters the temple. It's the beginning of the Passion Week. Of course, we celebrate Passion Week between uh, Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. That's coming up in a month or so, between Palm Sunday and Resurrection Sunday. Four days later, it's now the 14th day of the first month. Folks are taking part in the Passover meal. And as they do, Jesus and his disciples are taking what we call the Last Supper. As the host of that meal, it would have been his job, his duty, his task to serve the lamb. And as the lamb, Jesus takes the bread and he takes the wine into his hands and he says, remember my body broken for you, my blood shed for you. And he pointed ahead to a blood-stained cross where he would die a Passover death, a lamb to the slaughter. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And Peter in 1 Peter, Peter 19 writes, You were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And John, writing in Revelation, calls Jesus the lamb 28, <coughs> 28 times. In Revelation chapter 5, we see Jesus the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, the one who has won the victory, appearing in heaven, looking like a lamb who has just been slain. We read that text just a little bit earlier. We won't read that again. One of the most fundamentally significant truths you can know about Jesus is that He is the Lamb. Say, Jesus is the Lamb. And one of the most majestic, extraordinary, glorious truths you can know about Jesus is not only that he is the lamb, but that he is our Passover lamb. As we noted earlier, every aspect of the birth, life, death, resurrection of Jesus, the Messiah, was prophesied in Hebrew scriptures long before those events transpired on the timeline of human history. No wonder Jesus would say to the Jewish leaders of his day, now you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify about me. What we must see is that here in Exodus, we don't just have an amazing story of this great deliverance on an unforgettable night in Jewish history. What we must see is that Passover points to Jesus and reveals to us the most fundamental truths about him. Now let's spend some time looking 
at the three aspects of the Passover, I want you to see as we close that Passover saves through judgment, Passover saves through sacrifice, and the Passover saves through substitution. And here's where we started, really. Passover saves through judgment. Passover being not just one of the plagues that God brings on Egypt, but the plague that God uses to free His people. The salvation God brings to His people is salvation through judgment. Salvation comes not, not by skirting around judgment. Salvation comes not by avoiding judgment. Salvation comes through judgment. You say, what do you mean, Pastor? Look at Exodus 12, 12 with me and ask yourself, from what does Passover save the people? For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike down the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. What or from whom does the Passover save the people? The most important thing that Israelites needed saving from was from the Lord Himself. The Lord needs to save His people from Himself. Look with me at verse 23. The Lord. Verse 27. The Lord. Verse 29. The Lord. The Lord. The Lord. The Lord. He's coming, and He's coming in judgment. We're not talking about hail or darkness or frogs or gnats or locusts or dead livestock. Those plagues came as Moses stretched out his hand. The Lord used Moses to miraculously deliver those plagues. But this time, this time, the Lord says even to Moses, there is no place anyone can hide. I am coming. Everyone, even Moses, must take shelter or face the awesome wrath of the Lord himself. And if it's to come, salvation must come from the Lord. People will need to be saved by the Lord from the Lord. But how? How will he do this? Well, Passover saves through sacrifice. Passover was an actual meal, but look at verse 27. It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. Well, what we see is that before it was a meal, it was a sacrifice. And a fundamental part of the sacrifice was its bloodiness. Look back up at verse 23. This is what prevents judgment. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. What makes the difference? Say it's the blood. It's the blood. When blood is coursing through our veins... There is life. Without blood, there's only death. And the blood of the Passover lamb is the sign of its sacrificial death. So what prevents the judgment of God? The blood, and only the blood. If there's no lamb's blood painted on the doorpost, your firstborn's blood will be spilled. If there's going to be salvation then judgment must come. Not salvation that avoids judgment or skirts around judgments, but salvation that comes through judgment. But the judgment falls where? On the sacrifice. That's what happened at Passover. 
and that's what happened at Calvary. The cross was the judgment that you and I deserved, but Jesus took our place. He received the righteous wrath that we deserved for our punishment, for our sins, as a willing sacrifice. And that's the only way salvation can come, beloved. Salvation must come through judgment. Judgment poured out on the perfect sacrifice. A perfect lamb slain at Passover. It's blood staining the doorpost. A perfect lamb slain at Calvary. His blood standing across. Blood for blood. Death for death. Now leads to the third point I want to make about Passover. Salvation comes through substitution. Salvation comes through substitution. Look at the last line of verse 30, a tragic verse. For there was not a house where someone was not dead. That was true of every house in Egypt that night, Egyptian and Israelite alike. There was death in every house. There was either a dead lamb or there was a dead son. If there was no dead lamb, there was a dead son. Beloved, do you see that Passover is a substitutionary sacrifice, a sacrifice that takes your place? It's you or your substitute. Can you imagine how grateful those firstborn sons in Israel were for that first little lamb that died in their place? But that does not begin to compete or compare with our gratitude for the Lamb of God. I mean, think about it. That little lamb at the first Passover was not a willing sacrifice for the firstborn Israelite sons. But Jesus was willing to die for you and for me. He willingly laid down his life for us. It is to his eternal glory that he laid down his life as our substitutionary sacrifice. Consider the cross. Go before that. Consider where Jesus came from. What he left behind for your sins and mine. Philippians 2 lays it out perfectly. Christ did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. On that first cross, the Lord of heaven and earth, the firstborn over all creation, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who was tempted in every way, as are we, but who never sinned, became the Lamb who was slain. The Savior became the sacrifice. The Lord became the Lamb. The Judge became the judged, the one through whom all things had been made was crucified, slaughtered as a lamb. That blood he shed flowed from a willing heart. The blood of God, as Acts 20 puts it, he shed for you, church. Acts tells us that. He shed that blood for the church. It's on your behalf, a substitution the blood of God was shed for you and me. Say the blood of God was shed for me. A beloved, another day, 
another day of judgment is on the horizon. And there will be blood required of everyone who's ever lived. For those who know Christ as their Lord and Savior, the Passover lamb has been sacrificed. The blood required from us has already been poured out for us in our place, on our behalf, as our substitute. If you've placed your faith in the Lamb, the Lord Jesus, then you are protected by His blood from that terrible, shortcoming day. If you've not placed your faith in Jesus as your Lamb, then there is nothing on God's green earth that can protect you from His wrath on that day. The blood of the Lamb is absolutely sufficient but it is also absolutely required. So have you taken refuge in Jesus Christ? Is his death on the cross for you? Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, is on his throne at this very moment, and he's waiting. He's watching. He's ready to receive you if you will but place your trust your faith in his finished work at Calvary. He's waiting to take away your sins. He's waiting to protect you from the wrath that you justly deserve. Call on him right now. He will not turn you away. And you can have perfect peace about the coming judgment, about the reality of a fiery hell. If you will but ask him, you can find refuge in the arms of of the Lamb. Another theme that runs through our text is that of remembrance. Verse 14 of chapter 12, this day shall be for you a memorial day and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Verse 17, observe the feast. Verse 25, keep this service. Even before the blood was dry on the doorpost of that first Passover, the people were given clear instructions as to how to remember, how to remember it in the years to come, in the generations to come. That's because the Passover, the Lord desired the Passover to be ingrained in the hearts and the minds of His people. They were to be people of the Lamb. They were to be people who were saved through substitutionary atonement. So they remember, and they go on remembering, and they go on remembering, reminding themselves of this glorious truth. And why must they be reminded? Because they will forget. And it's the same on the night that Jesus died. You and I would excuse Jesus if he was preparing himself for what lay ahead of him in those next few awful hours and yet yet what he does is spend that precious time telling his disciples how to remember him telling him that what he would do for them and for us this is my body broken for you this is my blood poured out for you do this in remembrance of me he takes the time jesus takes the time because the cross and what he did there must be indelibly written upon the hearts and minds of all who will follow him of all who will call him lord we are people of the Lamb. We are those who are saved through Christ, the Lamb of God, and His substitutionary sacrifice. And so, too, we must keep on remembering. We must be reminded. Why? Because we will forget. But we must never forget. We are people saved by the blood of the Lamb.
As a church, we take the Lord's Supper monthly to remember. And sure, we can remember by reading about Him in Scripture, through meditating on Scripture, through prayer, through fellowshipping with and encouraging one another, through, through all these, we proclaim with John the Baptist, Behold the Lamb. That's the whole purpose of life for us. And our great privilege and unimaginable joy for all eternity will be to behold the Lamb. But for our time here, as we await heaven's joy, as we remember Him, as we contemplate His majesty and glory and beauty, we can yet experience genuine life, genuine joy, genuine security, perfect peace, grief-dispelling hope, and unconditional, unparalleled love. So church, brothers and sisters, behold the Lamb. Behold the Lamb slain from the foundations of the world for sinners crucified. A holy sacrifice. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb.